XX Will Travel is brought to you by Ciderbox. Ciderbox is a subscription box that delivers hard-to-find American heritage cider to your door. You can pick the size that works for you, either three bottles, a half case, or a full case. Find more information at ciderbox.com. C-I-D-R-B-O-X.com. I was like, I felt like you're in headlights in the sense, like, so much info. I know. I want to grab it all. Wait, what? <laughs> What's going on now? <laughs> but I have to ask you a question? Welcome to season three Yay! of XX Will Travel. <laughs> I'm Inez Bellina. And I'm Kathy Pokerbeck, still. Yeah, that has not changed. <laughs> so welcome back after our August summer hiatus. We are super excited for our kickoff episode yes. because we have travel writer and travel entrepreneur, Gabby Logan. Hi. <laughs> Gabby pretty much has the dream the dream job and the dream life. She does. She does. She is the author of the six figure travel writing roadmap. Both Inez and I own copies. Yes. And is a journalist, trade magazine contributing editor, and travel writing coach who seeks to inspire travelers to experience the world more deeply and travel writers to achieve their dreams in terms of both flexibility and income. She coaches writers through Dream of Travel Writing and runs the Travel Magazine database with information on how to pitch hundreds of travel magazines. So welcome, Gabby. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yay, yay. We're so glad to have you here. This is my main point of intrigue is this. You and I have actually very similar backgrounds. You were in a PhD program. I was in a PhD program. You left it to become a writer and were successful at it. I left it to become a writer and my degrees of success have been more underwhelming. Um, so please, <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us how you went from that, from grad student to like the freelance travel writer that you are now? I was actually going to say, I, so I didn't even get to the PhD program part, so maybe that's part of the difference. Is I, didn't, I didn't actually do, I didn't do that part. So I was actually, my husband's kind of an academic as well, so mm-hmm. we had what they call in academia a two-body problem, which is when you're trying to get two people in either the same university or universities in the same area. So when he was on the job market, I was looking at grad schools and I decided, let me just wait and see where he ends up and I'll apply after rather than trying to apply at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I wanted to do a PhD in Italian literature because my undergraduate degree is in Italian literature and I had lived in Italy and I was just taken, not even so much by the place. And travel, we talk a lot about the sense of place and the people. To me, like, I really loved just the sound of the Italian language. Like, I'm like a little dog, and if I'm in New York City and there's Italian, I perk up and I look around <laughs> and try to find the Italian. So I, at the time, thought, well, I'm American. I'm not actually Italian. And so if I want to teach Italian language and literature, I need to have a very high level of not just language, but also familiarity with the culture. So I thought, okay, well, I'm waiting to go to grad school, let me start travel writing because that's something that I can do from Italy while I'm working on my degree to earn money. Mm -hmm. So I actually started with the money part rather than the academia part. And then I I essentially found out that writing about travel for a mass audience could do what I wanted to do as a professor, which is expand people's horizons as to how people in different places live and how that can inform 
your everyday life and make you see things differently. I found that I could do that much more quickly in terms of publications Mm -hmm. um, and also more widely by writing as a journalist rather than writing as an academic. Academics are sort of isolated and their audience is sort of isolated too. Yeah, it's basically the five people. Exactly. And I do the same thing with Japanese. Like whenever I hear someone speaking Japanese, my ears perk up. Which is even even harder to find in the Midwest. Yeah. So. <laughs> How did you get that first published piece, though? Because I think for a lot of people, that is the mystifying part of any sort of writing project, just simply getting that first publication out. And the thing is, I get this question pretty often, and I, I'm not even sure that I remember what was the first item of writing, so to say, that I got published, because I actually started doing some writing for the web when I was in college, and I also wrote for the college newspaper as Mm -hmm. well. And so I do remember when I decided that I was going to do this full-time, we had recently moved to New York, and I had been kind of freelance writing but also doing graphic design. I also had a food blog. I was doing a lot of different things. And I essentially decided that I was going to narrow and just do travel writing. And I had entered this contest, and some time had gone by. I hadn't heard back. And I followed up. This is this is like the number one lesson people would follow up. <laughs> and I followed up, and the guy said, oh, well, like, we didn't think it quite fit in the category, so we couldn't make it a winner, but we want to buy it anyway. Oh. And he was like, here's how much we pay. And, you know, like, in retrospect, it, like, wasn't a ton, but it, but it was a very long essay. It was something like 3,000 words or something like that. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to buy my thing, because when you write something that long – especially as a new writer, and even I don't do it all that much now, but when you write these long narrative kind of full of, of, of meaning and lessons pieces, you really feel like nobody's going to like it. Mm-hmm. And I rewrote this particular piece three or four times. In fact, I think I rewrote the entire thing from scratch at like 10 p.m. the day of the deadline, like completely a new version of it. So I remember I had, some din- I had a dinner with some friends and my husband that night, and we had a toast to the fact that I had sold that article. But the thing is that, I sold that article. I sold a couple other articles that were more feature-length articles around that same time. And the thing is that 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 isn't what makes a business. And the thing, like I said, how I rewrote that article three or four times and I waited all this time to follow up, those are the kind of things that I see a lot of people do but for like four or five years. And that's a really good way to keep aspiring to be a travel writer or doing Mm. travel writing as a hobby. Whereas what happened to me after that was that I was fortunate to see an ad online because there are often relatively, or, you know, not relatively, but actually legitimate writing positions advertised online. I saw something advertised for Italy Magazine, which is formerly a print magazine, and now it's completely online. And they were looking for somebody to write cultural news for them and also a feature every week. And I got that. And so then I got into the habit of writing every single day based on the current news, something that was on deadline that had very much like if you worked in a newsroom. And that completely Mm -hmm. changed the amount of time that I spent on each piece and how much I dithered about what was going to go in there and the research and what I call falling down the research rabbit hole, especially, and all of those things. And that really allowed me to become a full-time writer in terms of, you know, writing 12 features a month, and that's a normal month and not a big deal because the the transition that I see a lot of people get stuck at is, is kind of, it's not even dropping the perfectionism so much, but it's realizing that your ideas are your currency and you don't get paid until the piece is done. 
and that you need to, to maximize both of those things as much as possible. There's some great quotes in there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're just here sta- staring at the computer screen mesmerized. <laughs> you mentioned you wrote for, um, what was it, Italy magazine? Mm-hmm. So when many people think of travel writing, they don't think of the niche markets like that. They think of all the glossies like National Geographic and Afar. But what are some of the other outlets that aspiring travel writers should pitch to? What do you recommend? It's funny because I actually tell people to categorically not pitch most of those magazines because it's and newspapers as well. Because if you list like the top places that most people want to pitch, I can tell you a fatal flaw as a freelancer with working with any of them. For instance, you know, the New York Times doesn't allow you to have gone on a press trip in the last three years or accepted anything for free, even if it's just a meal. And you can't have a history of accepting free things before that. And they don't pay for your travel. They'll pay for some underground expenses, but not travel. Afar is notorious for holding on to stories forever. National Geographic Traveler had a big budget issue a few years ago, wasn't paying people. Budget Travel had the same thing. So most of the big outlets that people think about are actually horrible to work with in various ways. So I pretty much categorically tell people, especially new people who need to build up their confidence in terms of getting their pitches accepted, to like run screaming the other way from those magazines. I remember when I was I was in your seminar and you were talking about Condé Nast Traveler and how they make you sign over the rights even if your story oh, like yeah. gets made into a movie or oh. like you don't get yeah, any money. Like, so yeah, so Condé Nast Traveler has this notorious contract where you sign away the rights to your story becoming a book or a movie, which is just insane because if it becomes a book, like I'm sure you're writing it, <laughs> you're getting like a very small amount of money for it. And another thing that I do in my seminars or if I speak at conferences and I do it sometimes at our live events at our retreat house in the Catskills where I'm actually speaking to you from right now is I do this timeline of how long it takes from pitch to payment Mm -hmm. for not just like the big, you know, five or so outlets that I just mentioned, but for really any national newsstand glossy magazine. It's Essentially, it could be 18 months or even two years from when you first pitch the piece to when you get paid. But you may have actually filed the piece four or five months after you pitched. So there's a huge gap between when you do the work and when you actually get paid for a lot of the big magazines. And they get away with it because they kind of can because people want to write for them. And so I've always found that one of the keys, like I said, in, in the beginning to building confidence as a new or new to publishing in an external outlet as opposed to your own blogs kind of writer is to go with editors that want to work with you. Because the thing is that you can write for all sorts of websites that want you to write for them for free. And they will get various benefits based on having published your words and you get quote unquote exposure. But the thing is there's also tons and tons of outlets that will pay you with editors who really care about helping writers become better and making individuals' essays better, but also making those those writers better writers going forward. And those outlets will pay you to learn, even though they're not going to pay, you know, as much as a thousand dollars a set like a, an article or a feature, but they're going to pay you and you're going to get to learn as opposed to learning for free. Because the thing is that a lot of those outlets that pay very little, and you know, there's several very well known ones. Go Nomad is another that pays about twenty dollars a post or something like that. Um, I think that that that's changed it, but there was this this women's writing network that was Wander Lipstick and Wonderlust, I believe it's called, and they don't pay at all. But there's again exposure. And the thing about those markets is that. If somebody is not putting the time into their editorial website 
to make the numbers make sense for them to pay writers? How much time are they spending looking at your piece or mm-hmm. marketing your piece and so on and so forth? So you really have to think about essentially the partnerships that you're making with the people that you choose to go after writing for and how much they care about you. So what are some of your favorite outlets to work with? For me, it's it's one thing because I have a you know, I have a background in Italy, I've been writing for a while, so to me I can sit down and do sixty interviews in a month and not blank or something. So the places that I like to write for that would be enjoyable for me to write for might be very different than somebody else. Mm. And the thing is that I often get a little like peeved when I see these lists of like, <laughs> here are ten places that pay for your travel articles because what happens is that people find those and then everybody's pitching those places. Mm. And that's probably also not the best places like for you, Kathy, or for you and us. Because when I when I coach travel writers or when we do our workshops, what happens is that the places that you're most fired up to write for and also the ones that are easiest for you and thus have the best hourly rate in terms of the income that you get for the time spent are the ones where you know the geographic area well mm-hmm. and the type of writing that that magazine or website means is easy for you. So, like, I know some people who just are very happy to to write guides. Like, they actually don't even like to write narratives. They don't even like to write feature kind of stories. They're very happy to write things that they're reporting by phone or they're reporting by Internet, and they're just, like, clicking through. And then some people really like to write features. And there's an astounding number right now of really stunning, photo-heavy, just, like, collectible independent travel magazines. And some of them are out of the U.S., some of them are out of the U.K., Australia. There's, I found a really cool one out of, like, Singapore the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and those actually are the ones that I'm really widely recommending to people right now mm-hmm. because they do typically pay, and they're beautiful, and you can write these narrative features that you thought there was nowhere else to put except on your blog. And so a couple of those that are really cool, there's two by the same publisher, I believe, out of New York. One is called Ambrosia, and that's food-related stories. Another one out of the same place is called Drift, and that is coffee culture in a certain city, and each issue is just focused on one city. And it's really cool because they take coffee culture, not in the way of like barista magazine or uh, a trade-centric magazine, but they take coffee in cafes and the, the act of sharing a warm beverage as a lens through which to look at the culture in that city. So do you see a trend towards more, like, hyper-specific titles? Yeah, it, there are actually several of these single-city-per-issue things. I don't know, I would say in the in the bucket of indie magazines, of which there's probably about 60 or 80 that are similar, there might be like seven or so that are like that. This is another one called Boat, and there's one that I'm blanking on the name of, but it's the editors are nomadic, and they go to a city each month, and they hang out there, and then they commission stories based on that city. So that's definitely the thing, but I think that, to go back to your early question about niche publications, just across the magazine industry, and also you see with websites, but specifically with print, the trend is towards hyper niche magazines because Mm -hmm. that's what people are still very successful selling advertisements for. And so there's a lot of magazines that have either sprung up and become successful or grown dramatically that are very, very specific in their coverage. And a good example, which touches on the travel market, is there's a publication family that does wedding magazines, and they have like 25 of them. They have like one for each state or like major metropolitan area practically. And they started not that many years ago and they're just churning out, you know, not in a negative way, but they have enough ad dollars coming in to just keep putting out more magazines and new markets. 
And another one that people might be familiar with that's similar is this company Modern Luxury has Manhattan Magazine, they have D in the Dallas area, they have a couple in the Southern California area. But there's a lot of magazines like this that are either hyper-specific in terms of the topic that they cover or hyper-specific in the geographic area or a combination of the two. Just taking it all in right now, I'm still just caught on Ambrosia because that sounds like a magazine I'd be really interested in reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the covers are so succulent. It's like I when we when I was putting them in the travel magazine database. I mean, there's one of the covers that we have that's like a like a fish I, on some really cool background. They're just stunning, and a lot of these yeah. independent magazines people don't know about because they're a little bit hard to get your hands on which then it's kind of funny because you say, well, how could they do well if people can't find them? But the people who are interested in reading these kind of magazines, they seek them out. But as a travel writer, you often don't hear about them. Yeah. And Ambrosia and Drift both pay $700 a piece. Whoa. And not for super, super long pieces either. And there's one that's crazy. It's called Earnest, I believe, and it's out of the UK. And they have this description of what the magazine is about. And it's just so nostalgic, but not in a hipster way, like <laughs> in an English countryside way. They say it's for people who whittle. Like these magazines are just so wow. <laughs> but it's great because that means that they're able to find their audience really easily. And also for you as a writer, it makes it a lot easier to know what to pitch them. Right. And I feel like their audience is going to be more like really loyal. Like once yeah. you find someone who exactly. fits fits in a hyper hyper specific niche like that, like that might be the only magazine out there. So I can't imagine lots of magazines being about whittling. (laughs) It's not that it's about whittling. They have this whole, I wish I could find it for you. I'm actually going to look. But they have this whole description of what the the type of person is that reads this magazine. And it's just like when you first read it, it just seems kind of ridiculous. (laughs) But then you realize, like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. Like, maybe I'm this kind of person or maybe I'd like to be this kind of person, you know? Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I think uh, trips up, excuse the pun, um, a lot of aspiring travel writers, which is, one, I mean, when it comes to pitching, do you first travel somewhere, find the story, and then pitch, you know, or do you first, like, think of the story, then go to travel so you can research the story and then pitch, or do you first just pitch and then travel? You know, like, I think the the actual mechanics of how this works can sometimes cause a lot of people to be paralyzed. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, and in fact, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because what I, what I see happen more often than not is actually, I, I, I can't remember where it was in the order that you mentioned, but mm-hmm. it's that people, if they don't write the story from scratch, they essentially have very highly sort of shaped out what they want the story to look like. And it's not even about they do that and then they pitch, but it's that they do that before they have a magazine picked out for the story. And so what happens is people get really into this certain concept or shape of a story idea, and that story idea doesn't actually have a home. Like, there's no magazine or website that would publish a story quite like that, either because it's too long for what they publish, because they would need to cover more than one geographic area in a story like that or because they might do that as an interview but not as a profile, or all these very different reasons. And so what I see happen a lot is that people have an idea, and they spend years, like, just flinging it all over the place, all sorts of different editors, and then they get really bummed because nobody's buying the story. However, if they looked at the magazine and saw exactly what the magazine is publishing, it's very likely that they could turn that idea 
into something that would work for that magazine or for another magazine or probably for 25 or 100 magazines, but just by changing it slightly. Mm -hmm. So what I see a lot of people do is that they come up with the idea first, typically based on a trip that they've already been on, and then they have a hard time selling it. But with people who write full-time or who find success a lot faster tend to do is that they come up with a story based on what the magazine is already publishing. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I mean it very literally. You can actually just look at stories that the magazine has already put out, and I call it like same thing, different place. <laughs> so I don't have a good one off the top of my head, but like say there was a story on, okay, I just read something that was in Modern Farmer, which is a magazine about farming and not exactly in a hipster way, but with a very modern aesthetic. And they had a story by this woman who had left the city and moved to the country, and it was essentially the urbanized guide to living in the country. Now, that was written in a very sort of how-to advice service sort of way for a general audience of people who are already interested in farming, but not for like the consumer audience that might be more general, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, you could take that same story and you could write it for a New York magazine and have it be the New Yorker's guide to moving to the country and have it talk about like destinations that are nearby and the advantages of each one and things that are very local specific. You could have the Seattleites guide to moving to the country, the Portlanders guide to moving to the country. And you can pitch this to each of those different magazines. So you can literally take one story that already exists and then pitch this exact same story to other magazines. Or you can even spin it back to the same magazine. So it's just you have to be flexible and not be fixated on one idea. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is that I think also like I when I, I have a whole weekend event that I do that's just about ideas. And we talk about being flexible also on the concept of what an idea is. Because, like, I think of an idea, as, as I kind of have alluded to, as having these different dimensions. One is the format, like whether it's a narrative feature or an interview or a collection of different related things, which is known as a roundup. So the format is one part. And then the why. So, like, the I'm pitching this to you about you know, something in the South because there was just this hurricane in Houston. Mm-hmm. Or I'm pitching this to you now for next spring because 2018 is the 150th anniversary of something. So one part is like the why, and that becomes a big focus of the idea. And then the other is kind of the content, which is what people typically think of as the idea. But that thing that people get stuck on is the idea is actually a very proto version, which can, like I said, take like a hundred or more different avenues once you go to match it to publications. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, it's like, it's like re- resetting your idea, not just of, of what an idea is, mm-hmm. but of what your initial ideas can be. Because sometimes people throw them out. They're like, well, I can't pitch this anywhere. And they just give up on it. But it really like that idea itself is still valid and still vivid, but it just needs to be kind of adding some some new information to it or looking at through a different lens or something like that. And the same thing happens on people's blogs, I think. Like, on people's blogs, because I get a lot of people who come to travel writing, and the Women in Travel Summit, for instance, has a lot of bloggers as well. A lot of people who come from blogs are used to being the editor of their own material. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is you're the final arbitrator on what goes out to people and what's right. And so there's kind of this letting go in a certain way that you need to do of being like, I know what the idea is for my publication, but when I pitch another publication, I need to figure out what that editor's idea of what an idea yeah. is for her publication. We're, we're both sitting here like 
kind of stunned yeah. by the information, <laughs> just like po- in a positive way. I was going to say, if you'd like an interlude, I found Ernest and I can tell you what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Kathy, can we talk about how amazing Ciderbox is? Ciderbox? What's Ciderbox? Oh, let me tell you. (laughs) Ciderbox is a subscription service that sends heritage American cider to your door. To your door? Yes, and you can choose either three bottles, six bottles, or a whole case. So what are some of the benefits of ordering Ciderbox? Ooh, well, there's the spiritual one because it's delicious and it will brighten your day. It's also gluten-free. So for all those people that preferred their things without gluten, it also helps the world. Ciderbox is proud to support the American Farmland Trust in their mission to save the land that sustains us by protecting farmland, promoting sound farming practices, and keeping farmers on the land. And a donation is made to the American Farmland Trust for every Ciderbox sold. Plus, you can get a discount when you use the promo code XXWillTravel. So, make sure to check it out at Ciderbox.com, C-I-D-R-B-O-X.com. Kind of notes do you take or photographs or information do you amass on that trip so that you can later flesh out these ideas you have? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point because I think a lot of people, when once they kind of become open to like, oh my God, I can write this story so many different ways, they run into the, the next step is this sadness that they're like, oh my God, I should have gotten different research when I was in the destination. <laughs> And this leads to that chicken and egg thing that you were talking about earlier, which is you go on the trip with specific articles in mind, whether you pitch them or not. And what I find is that I personally end up doing a lot of very cursory research on the ground. So, like, I'm, I actually very rarely, unless I'm on a press trip and forced to, do interviews when I'm there. I usually kind of fly very much under the radar and pick up business cards and kind of, like, ask questions. But I get, like, these very, like, proto ideas. Like, oh, this place looks interesting. Let me make sure I have all their contact information so I come back to them later. So I essentially do a lot of familiarizing myself with things and trying to figure out what is actually notable about this place. Because when you visit a destination as a tourist, everything is new. Everything is interesting. But the thing is that when you're looking at it as a travel writer, you need to get to the next level of that. So you need to go past what everybody else is seeing on their first trip. And this is why it's hard to write about places in a, in a way that's very saleable to editors that you've only been to just once. Mm-hmm. So you need to essentially go there, get over all the initial, essentially, you know, like realizations that people have the first time they go somewhere and then see what lies after that and what's unique to that place. So that's what I look for is I go and I experience different things, but I try to do as much as I can so that I have enough data to be like, okay, what is really different about this destination versus that destination? Which leads to my next question. Can you ever really take a vacation? Like I asked this to a food critic once, could you ever just eat a meal? And he was like, no, never. Like (laughs) his inner monologue never turns off. So how about you? Can you just be on vacation? I also have done a lot of food writing and I also used to do theater writing and I completely understand that sentiment. And it's essentially like when you know what's going on behind the scenes, you look for all of and what you're actually experiencing. And so I think it's a little bit of mental discipline to say, like, I'm going to turn that off right now and ignore those things. And sometimes I can't. Sometimes, especially like if you're on a press trip and things are just going really horribly, you can't help but ignore those things. <laughs> but if you are on if you are on your own trip, 
than you can. And in fact, sometimes I intentionally go to places that I've already been. So I typically, to go on vacation, I essentially try to go places where, like, nothing is new and nothing will make me reach for my phone and take notes and be like, oh, my God, I have to write this down right now. That's, I guess that's easier than with food. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell me it with food, too. I mean, like, I'll, like I, I have a place in Italy, which is an Airbnb that I stay at pretty regularly now to kind of take a vacation and it's in this hilltop town in Italy where the view is just the best view that I've ever had in all of my like more than a decade of going to Italy. There's two restaurants in the town that are just amazing and award-winning and then but I know what they have and like maybe it'll be slightly different but I know I can go there and I can get the antipasto plate and it's going to have like nine different things but like I don't need to take notes on it you know I've already yeah. done that. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned Italy. Is that your favorite region to travel or do you have other favorites? You know, it's really hard. And I think my kind of favorite place changes as I go to new places. Somebody jokingly said during a retreat recently that I'm a nomadic homebody, (laughs) which is so true. I, I kind of really don't live anywhere. We have an apartment in New York because my husband works in the city and then we have the retreat center and the Catskills, and then I spend like two or three weeks every month somewhere else entirely. So I really sleep in the same place for two or three days at a time. And as a result, like I might have said like five or six years ago, oh, of course, Italy is my absolute favorite place. But now I've been going to Sweden a lot, and I really like Sweden, especially like the certain area of Stockholm. And I'm sure in two years, it'll be something slightly different. So I think Italy, for me, just in part because the language and that I went to school there and like, you know, from a monetary perspective of having majored in it, I feel like I've invested a lot in Italy is always going to be very special. But I also love, you know, that I, even though I love that so much, I can still go to a new place and fall in love with that new place and say, no, 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 now this is my favorite. (laughs) And it depends on your mood too and the time of year and... Like I like my I'm sure my husband's very sad about this, but I continue to not fall in love with India. He's from India. Oh no! (laughs) You know, it's not that I don't like certain things about it, but I think that different people, and this goes back to what I was saying about how the right magazine pitch is different for everybody, but also about how the right place to travel is different for every traveler, and that's why there's so many magazines and websites out there. But like, I'm just not a you know, it's not about it's not about third world or dirty or whatever. I'm just not a person who likes to be traveling and having to think about so many things that I'm also thinking about. Am I going to accidentally eat something that has water on it and get food poisoning? Like mm-hmm. it's just it's like something that makes traveling too stressful for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's like there's a difference between with me between vacations and working vacations. Where <laughs> India would be a working vacation because your brain is on overstimulated all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, India's totally overstimulating. That's definitely part of it. But, like, I got sick at my own wedding, and I was sick on my entire honeymoon in a water villa in the Maldives. It's just, like, the the amount that you need to be on your guard in India to kind of stay, like, human is very high. (laughs) Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, there's vacations that are definitely meant for, like, relaxation, and then there's others that you know you're going to experience something different, but it might not be relaxing. Right. (laughs) And, like, I I originally was a really big eco – I was big about writing about eco-traveler, and I've kind of gone now – sort of in the writing in the mainstream way about eco and cultural traveler to kind of change things from the inside. But I know for a lot of my friends who are very, very sustainable and eco tourism focused, for instance, like they could never go and relax 
at a resort, even if it was like not a completely whitewashed resort, they just couldn't because yeah. they would be thinking about the waste and this and that and the other thing. So even that is like different for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us a bit about Dream of Travel Writing. How did that come about? And what is it? And what is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Dream, Dream of Travel Writing is our company. And it does, we have three main things that we do. So I guess oh, we have the webinars also to do for. So I, as I mentioned, we have this retreat house in the Catskills where I'm setting up right now for a week-long event that we're doing uh, about a week from now. And we do writing retreats here where I teach the whole weekend and I feed you and we sit outside if it's sunny and we sit inside if it's not. And you focus on one aspect of your travel writing, whether it's coming up with ideas or writing pitches or working on content marketing, so like blogging for tours and boards at companies. We also offer residencies here. So, like, if you're nomadic or even if you're not and you just need to get away from your family to get some writing done, you can just come for a week and, and be here. And even right now, I'm sitting at, we have, like, a 30-odd-foot-long desk in front of this big sweeping window where you can just sit and get your work done or edit a bunch of photos or write a draft of a book. Other things that we do through Dream of Travel Writing are I do one-on-one -on -one coaching with people to – it's not about on your writing because there's a lot of people who – you know, teach travel writing or focus on travel writing. But like I said, at the top of the call, I found that to be a successful writer, it's much more about managing those business skills in terms of making sure that you're getting your pitches out and keeping your perfectionism in check and all those things. So with the one-on-one -on -one coaching, we, we talk and you have homework that you need to do in between. And I essentially keep you, keep you on your business and reaching your income goals. And then we also have the travel magazine database that you guys mentioned in my introduction. Mm -hmm. And that has about 500 magazines. And we break down every single section in each magazine that's open to freelance writers and exactly how to pitch it, how many words it is, if it's first, second, or third person, what type of voice it has, if there's sidebars, if it's a guide or an interview or a feature. And that's available for subscription. And then we also have webinars that I do every week for free for about an hour, an hour and a half. I talk about different topics in travel writing and pitching. We've got a month on photography coming up. And then if you miss them when you're, they're live, you can also catch them later. We have a webinar library where you can sort of buy a bundle that has the video or the MP3 version you can listen to at the gym or in your car, along with the full transcript of the recording. So that's pretty much, that's the company. That's, that's all the stuff I do. Oh, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> so you are not busy at all. You just travel and sip wine. <laughs> you know, like all those, totally, yeah. all those travel writers, what, the, the vision everybody has of yeah. a travel writer. <laughs> crazy. Yeah, my um, dad comes from a family of dairy farmers. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and we were always the city kids when we would go visit the farm and everyone else was used to the smell and wondered what was wrong with us. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the city mouse issue. We were just picking up lumber because in my infinite free time, I build all the furniture at the retreat house. 
and we were just picking up some lumber for some things, and we put them in our little our little city size Acura sedan, and everybody was just looking at us like we're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> to wrap things up, what is the best advice you can give someone who's interested in becoming a travel writer? Besides all the I other wonderful that, advice you've already given. <laughs> um, I think the thing that can really save you a lot of time is to not follow advice indiscriminately. Actually, mm-hmm. so this is like mm-hmm. a piece of advice about following advice. It's a bit meta. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I find a lot of people come to me and they say, oh, well, I started a blog because I told somebody that I wanted to write for travel magazines, and they told me, well, start a blog, and then you'll have clips that you can give editors, and editors will find you through your blog. And then they spend you know, six months, two years, learning how to do WordPress, optimize their blog posts, do SEO and social media and building a network. And in the end, they haven't written for any travel magazines. They think it's way too much work and way too much time, and they're not doing what they wanted to do, and they give up. And if they had just started pitching magazines in the first place instead, they would have gotten where they wanted to go Hmm. a lot faster. And so I find that the, the, the best advice that I can give is to, before you consider any advice or seek out advice, is to get uber clear on what you really want as a travel writer and out of travel writing. Do you want to go on free trips? Do you essentially just want to be location independent and use travel writing to do that? Do you really, really want to write for National Geographic Traveler? Like the timeline and the pay be damned. Like what is it that you actually want? And then just do the things that line up with that. And, yeah. and what is it that you wanted? When you started travel writing. I wanted to be location independent, really, was what I wanted. I mean, if you, in my, you guys have my book. In the book I have at the beginning, kind of three different motivations for travel writers. If I had to choose, I really used to spend a lot of time reading blogs about being location independent and looking at different jobs that I could do to do that. And as I mentioned, when I first left my job, I was doing graphic design and I was doing lots of little different things here and there. And I found, and, and this was the case for me, and it, and it often is, but it's not for everybody, so don't take this piece of advice too much to heart. But when you, when you leave your job or you think of leaving your job and you have a thousand little projects, none of them will go anywhere. I have people that I coach sometimes that, you know, they're working on a book of poetry in secret that they're not telling me about, but they're spending like 20 hours a week on it. And they're also doing videography, and then they're also trying to write for, they're trying to do content marketing to travel companies, and they also want to write for magazines. And it's just really hard to make significant traction in any one of those when you're making lots of little steps towards all of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. And on a final note, where can we find you? Yeah, so my pretty much everything I do is based through Dream of Travel Writing, which is dreamoftravelwriting.com. And the Travel Magazine Database has its own site, which is conveniently just travelmagazinedatabase.com. So <laughs> everything is very, it's very easily findable. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with us and for sharing all this knowledge. Thanks for having me, you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, ladies. Have you always wanted to travel the world but don't have a travel buddy? Girl Squad Tours is an international travel company for women, specializing in small female-only group tours across the globe. They offer flexible payment plans, exciting itineraries, knowledgeable squad leaders, and so much more. Visit girlsquadtours.com to reserve your spot. So, in Season 3, we are trying out something new. It's a new segment that will appear in each episode called Top 3 Tips. Top 3 Tips about what? (sighs) I'm glad you asked, Kathy. Pretty much about anything with regards to travel. This might be Top 3 Tips about a destination, or Top 3 Tips about with a travel hack, or in this case, Top 3 Tips 
about a specific travel etiquette issue. Oh, do tell. In this case, it's going to be top three tips for being gracious about a city you don't like. Huh. Let me back up and explain what's going on in Chicago as of the time of this recording. Some douche nozzle called Eric Berry had a HuffPost article go viral where he basically wrote about his experience in Chicago and he titled his farewell, I can't even remember, something about goodbye Chicago. Um, like what it's like to live in a city you yes. don't like or something to that effect. Exactly. So we, don't, we don't want to give him any more clicks. We really don't. But let's just say that he was not a happy camper here, which is fair. But the reasons why he kind of crapped on the city were not fair. And you guys can look that up if need be. And he lived here for three years. For three years. And, well, okay, I'm not going to get about, I'm not going to defame his name, but let's just say there's a lot of rumors going around about his character here. Yes, and not good ones. No, not good. Especially if you're a lady. <laughs> in any case, though, this has come up with me time and time again, because I've lived in, bear, in like a lot of different places. And that means that I've had, you know, a lot of visitors come in and kind of give me their thoughts on places that I called home at the time. Most people are super nice about it. But every once in a while, you get someone who's like, I hate your hometown. And I never understand this response. I find it so rude. So if you need guidance, if you're one of those people who will just flat out tell another person that their home sucks, here are my top three tips for not doing that. One, when someone asks you, hey, how do you like my hometown? What do you do? You think of the one thing you like about it, weather, architecture, that awesome food you had, and you mention that. You say, oh, I really like this pizza I had the other day. Or, geez, I've realized that the seasons here are really beautiful. Let's role play. <laughs> Go for it. Let's do it. So, Kathy, what do you think about Chicago? It has a lot of really even sidewalks, which makes walking around really easy. Awesome! Yay! That's all you need to do. Believe me, most people will get that maybe you're not super gung-ho about it, but they will also know to not really push the subject. Alternate response. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not for me, but I can see why other people would want to live here. Yep, exactly. All these things are great. What not to do? I hate it here, which is, side note, a response I actually got this summer. Number two, how to be gracious about a city you dislike. Is it the city or is it you? Because honestly, at least with this guy, sometimes it has more to do with your own personal issues and bad luck and misfortunes than it has to do with anything that the city has to offer. It is also worth noting that he is a lifelong San Franciscan and wrote a similar tome yes. when he left San Francisco. Exactly. So if you notice that you're constantly complaining about cities and places you live, it might not actually be the location. It might just be that you're a homebody or you only really like being in your hometown. And that's fine, but just don't blame it on the city. Right. And... Number three, do not write long rants with made-up facts and publish them in places like HuffPost and BuzzFeed. Complain about it to your friends, your family, your coworkers. Write about it in your journal. But honestly, don't crap in a city that's not your home. Example. <laughs> in aforementioned article, young Eric, Eric? 
Eric. Yeah. yeah. Uh, young Whatever. Eric <laughs> mentions an alleged Chicago specialty, uh-huh. a hamburger with tortilla chips mixed in. Yes. Neither of us, nor have any of our extensive network of Chicago citizens who all eat food every day, have ever tried this specialty. But because Chicagoans are awesome, we're all very intrigued by it and now want to eat it. (laughs) And that's it. Those are my top three tips for being gracious about a city you don't like. Thanks for listening. (laughs) So thank you, Inez. And thank you, Gabby Logan, for being our guest on this episode. Um, Thank you for tuning back in for season three. It's going to be amazing. And... um, Oh, yes. Sorry, I'm just interjecting here again to say follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at xxwilltravel.com and sign up for our newsletter, which you can do so on our Facebook page as well as on our website, xxwilltravel.com. And you can't see us, but that was a really creepy interjection. (laughs) (laughs) Which means that Kathy will be top three. Next top three tips is going to be how not to be creepy to your podcast. <laughs> it, was, it was not creepy in its, in its execution, just in the buildup. Yes. And our last piece of advice of all the advice you've received today is to go forth and travel.